Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. The Northman premiered in U.S. theaters on April 22, 2022. Set in Viking Age Scandinavia, the film tells the story of Prince Amleth and his quest for revenge on the uncle who usurped his father's throne. Like Shakespeare's Hamlet, the film is loosely based on a legend recorded by the 12th century Danish writer Saxo Grammaticus. In the press tour for the film, both the director Robert Eggers and the film's Swedish born star and co producer, Alexander Skarsgård stressed the film's historical accuracy and cultural authenticity. Critical and audience reviews were divided. Some lauded the film as the best take yet on a quote-unquote Viking mindset, while others criticized the film's heavy-handed narrative. While The North Man was still in theaters, Lauren Poyer, assistant teaching professor in Scandinavian studies here at the University of Washington, sat down with Daniel Bessner and Derek Davison on their podcast, American Prestige, to talk about the film's interest in portraying a quote-unquote historically accurate Viking age, as well as its medieval inspirations and the popularity of Vikings in the United States. We are happy to be able to share that interview with you today. Hello, Prestige Heads, and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here, as always, with my friend, colleague, and comrade Derek Davison. And we are very excited to be joined today by Lauren Poyer. Uh, Lauren is an assistant teaching professor in the Department of Scandinavian Studies at the University of Washington. And we're here to discuss the Northmen. But before we do that, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk about this. is the first time I'm talking about this film since I saw it last week. So, Oh, perfect. Oh, God. So we're, we're, right. we're going to get ready get for the hot takes or the, the cold takes, as thoughts. it were. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, like the raw meat that those people took to the theater. Did you guys see that? I'm sorry. I don't mean to derail Oh, oh yeah, I did see that. That was like a— The white like nationalists a, who took like oh, yeah. raw meat into the theater with them. Yeah, that, that must yeah, have been they, fun. Yeah, it's so, so crazy. Yeah, but maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. But why don't we just start at the beginning? And so, Lauren, before we actually get into the Northmen, I was just wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about the ways Vikings are presented in contemporary American culture or really international culture. Um, in recent years, it does seem like there's there's been an explosion of Viking content. You have the show Vikings, um, obviously, and you have all of the ripoffs that came from them um, and, and sort of other similar stories. I know there's one, I forget the name of it, that's about kind of like early um, Anglo-Saxons and, and things along those lines. Uh, you have an Assassin's Creed game being made about Vikings. You have Game of Thrones, which is not quite Vikings, but it's like the War of the Roses plus like Viking vibes a little bit and sort of the Sea Peoples. So I was just wondering, what what role do you see Vikings as playing in American popular culture? Oh, it's funny that you used to want to start with that question. I actually made a joke in my Old Norse language class a few weeks ago about why Vikings are so popular. That caused a lot of contention in my class. A couple of people came to office hours afterwards just to ask, ask about it. I made a joke. I said, America loves Vikings because America loves police. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so hot take right out the gate, I guess. That is but, a hot, that is scorching. That, that's, that's what we're yeah, here for. Fiery. Nice. Yeah. Well, so I, I, um, I think there's a couple of reasons why Vikings ha- are having a moment or especially we're having a moment in the 2010s. And I think, I think we cannot discount the influence that, uh, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings had on an entire generation of media consumers. Like, those films in the early 2000s were, like, genre-changing and genre-defining for fantasy broadly, but especially, like, medieval fantasy. And I think it rekindled, or kindled in, in the millennial generation, especially, like, an interest in medieval Europe as an imaginative space. And so you get now, 15, 20 years later, a whole generation of people who have grown up reading Lord of the Rings, seeing the films, maybe playing Dungeons and Dragons. And so they're looking for, like, what are the historical underpinnings or inspirations for all of this media that they love so much? And I think there's something especially attractive about Vikings because of the longer history of their representation in Europe and North America, which is always tied up in a sense of, you know, national destiny and victory and power and a lot of like masculine coded words and manifest destiny, you know, and so a lot of kind of, to a certain extent, unexamined um, American values around uh, imperialism are super tied up in Vikings, um, and I don't. I don't think that Vikings, the television show, like the History Channel show, is necessarily like the production team was like, oh, I'm going to make a show about imperialism, right? But I think the idea of you know the rugged individual, typically male explorer, who can go out on his own and discover something new and strange and gets to also love his family and would never kill women and children and always fights for the right thing while encountering strange new lands. I mean, that's that's not Vikings. That's Columbus. You know, like I, I see a lot of parallels in the kinds of stories that are told um, with with Vikings. So here's a question that that is uh, probably a bit outside of your area, but I'm curious if you know, were Vikings sort of popular characters in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries during sort of the era of of high colonization out West? Yes. <laughs> yes, they, they were. So the first English language translations that we have of the sagas, medieval Icelandic literature, which most of which is written down after the end of the Viking Age, but a lot of it takes place in the Viking Age. Um, the first translation we have of the Icelandic sagas into uh, English is actually in the 1860s. So like during the Civil War. Um, which is always a trip for my students to learn. I think it was William Morrison's translation of Njal's saga. Um, so it's a, a an English, like British English, uh, scholar who's translating it. But those those stories, um, once translated into English, kind of uh, trickle out into you know the expanding middle class in the Anglophone world. And by the 1890s, I mean you have the genre of historical fiction in you know late Victorian England and in the U.S. where people are are writing and consuming like pulp novels about Vikings. So they're very much part of the Anglophone consciousness of like exploration, and they're also very much tied up in um, larger movements of like or larger interest in in racial science, the idea of, like, the Anglo-Saxon race or the Nordic race. Um, And so there's a lot of interest um, 
in combining those narratives or like comparing those narratives of like the Viking Age in Scandinavia to like the lived experiences of people in the late 19th, early 20th century in America. Yeah. And and of course, also, I mean, um, we, we know Seattle well. There was a large Scandinavian immigration to the United States in parts as well, um, and a large German immigration of people from the German principalities pre-unification. So uh, do they also bring sort of this like Norse mythology thing? Because I, I think today in a lot of people's minds, at least somewhat Vikings are associated with like the far right, particularly, you know, the Nazis' use of runic symbols and, and the classic things. But before that, in the United States, were, were these stories brought over, you know, um, from, from Scandinavian and also Germanic immigrants or, or not really? It's mostly the English translation that seems to spread it throughout the bourgeois household effectively. Mm-hmm. I would say we do have some evidence that Scandinavian immigrants brought over, even, you know, from Iceland, medieval manuscripts, because those were mostly owned by families until the early modern period where they were collected and then put in, you know, the um, the library at the University of Copenhagen. So we do have, there are some medieval Icelandic manuscripts of sagas that have been donated to like Harvard and Yale and Cornell, I think as well, um, that were brought over by immigrant families. But a lot of the the cultural awareness of the sagas and of medieval Scandinavian literature really was like disseminated from the top down, like from the academy and then from like middle class uh, printed printers. Yeah. <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and the, the connection you made to Tolkien is really interesting because, of course, he was a linguist. And so the way that he he sort of used his language skills to create kind of a pseudo-Nordic race with the elves and their special language and they're all blonde and they're tall and they live forever is really compelling. So did how did the popular representation of Vikings change or not change, I guess, over the course of the 20th century when, you know, America is finally stretched from sea to shining sea uh, and, you know, formal colonization, at least on the continent, comes to an end. Um, is there a transformation in the image of the Viking? Uh, in particular, how does World War II and when you're fighting the Germans affect Vikings? I'd be curious about maybe how it develops over the first half of the 20th century up to and including World War II. Yeah. Well, I can say to start, um, even if the the sagas themselves weren't like widely read or popular among a lot of immigrant communities in the U.S. coming from Scandinavia, especially from like Norway, there certainly was an interest in kind of emulating Nordic heritage in the late 19th and early 20th centuries um, because of, you know, the process of racialization that all different ethnic groups undergo as they come to the United States. And so you have this interesting kind of ranking different immigrant groups based on, like, uh, different ethnic groups based on how how white they are. Um, and so the, the myth of Leif Erikson discovering America was just like Columbus was for Italian immigrants, a way for them to kind of claim like, oh, we belong in America. We are a part of America. You know, we're part of this melting pot and we deserve uh, to have equal economic access and opportunity. Um, And so Leif Erikson Day you know, SpongeBob Hingadingadurgen Day was, in fact, uh, a response by Norwegian and Swedish immigrant communities to Columbus Day becoming a thing. That they were like, "Oh, we should have, we should have one of those too." Um, I would say, post World War II, um, in my one of my classes, I teach the the 1958 Viking film. Um, 
which I teach it almost, I don't mean to, but I end up teaching it. Oh, I hit the bumper. I end up teaching it as a Cold War film because it's, it has this very Shakespearean tone of two cultures, the the Vikings and the English that represent uh, two different sides of the moral coin. And these cultures will never be able to integrate. And it's such a tragedy that these two great civilizations are kind of separated by fate. Um, and you have this love affair between a Viking character and an English woman, but it it's never going to work out because they can't be together. And I'm like, this feels like, you know, it's 1950s America. This feels like the 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 Soviet the Cold War, like Soviet scare to me very much. So it becomes inflected by geopolitics, right? So oh, yeah. so I think I, I wanted to just make clear before we dive into The Northman, which to me seems like a show that's inflected by geopolitics, that this is sort of the role that the Viking plays in the American imaginary. Um, and I think it's so interesting and so smart, and our listeners are going to love that point about how it's like so connected to this image of colonization and this image of taming the untamable land. And in some sense, I think what's really interesting about Vikings is about how the literal taming makes the man is that they, the, the landscape makes the man and the Viking makes the landscape and how they go back and forth, which is so tied up in uh, ideas of, of, of manifest destiny uh, and indigenous dispossession. And that's so interesting. Um, so why don't, why don't now that we give that little precie just to pro- provide people with a bit of a context, why don't we get to the Northman? So I guess first, first, uh, first off first, what, what's your, what's your ultimate take on it? I, I, I think one thing that it's been getting a lot of play for is being supposedly historically accurate the director, Robert Eggers, is really interesting because his whole oeuvre, um, including The Witch and The Lighthouse, are basically designed to like put you into a subjectivity, a pre-modern subjectivity in a sense, particularly with The Witch in this show. And so um, what I find so interesting about him is that what I think his major contribution is, is that he, things that uh, appear fantastical to us are just part of living in, in a Viking world. Um, so I was just wondering what you thought. Maybe we could just start with your hot take, what you thought. Is it accurate? Is it very inaccurate? And then we could just go from there and whatever you want to hit, because I have a million questions. <laughs> I would say that um, in some ways it is very accurate. I was very happy and pleased to see a lot of more recent scholarship on the Viking Age, especially archaeological and like material culture discoveries, um, be incorporated into the the film. Um, because, you know, I a lot of the Viking media from the last decade I see as just kind of recycling the same tropes from 50 years ago, which were being recycled from 50 years before that, you know. Um, and so this time I was like, oh, these are Things that the public might not necessarily know are like uh, archaeological realities uh, or material realities of the Viking Age. So that was very fun as someone who studies this period. Um, But I think my ultimate hot take was that I didn't like it like as a film. Like I thought I thought that the ethnographic interest of the film distracted from like the the movie, like the narrative, like by the end. Can I talk about spoilers? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is oh, a spoilers yeah, only uh, full, spoilers yeah. full podcast. Okay, yeah. great. By the, and the plot the isn't end, important. It's Hamlet, yeah. Yeah, it's just Hamlet. We all know Hamlet. <laughs> I think this is, yeah. But by the end of the movie, I'm sitting there in the theater. I had invited a, a couple of friends to go with me, some of whom are also medievalists and some of whom are more like film buffs, you know. And I get I get to the, the final climactic fight when they're at on Hecla and they're like fighting naked on the lava. And I just started laughing. <laughs> 
I yeah, I was just like, I'm so bored. Why are we doing this? Like, I don't care. And it's not even like I'm so conflicted about this anti-hero protagonist who's morally ambiguous. I was like, no, I'm like so detached from this movie. I'm thinking about, you know, which train am I going to catch to get home? <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I I watched I watched it like I went slipped out uh, one evening last week to go see the movie knowing that I was going to have to come back and work, do, do some more work. So I, I'm somewhat, somewhat similar to you. Like by the end of the movie, the last like quarter of the movie, I, my mind was on like, what am I going to be doing when I get home and have to go back to work? So I, I felt the same way. I kind of like slipped, <laughs> it kind of like slipped uh, past me. Um, but I'm curious, you know, without, well, I mean, we've already spoiled it for anybody who didn't no, realize spoilers. that this was Hamlet. Um, we've already, you know, we, we've established that this is the, was the basis of Hamlet. I'm curious about the Amleth legend. And if you could talk a little bit about that and the, uh, its origins, where does it come from? Where do we, where does it come from in terms of the, the body of Norse myth? Are there sort of sources behind that, that, that kind of, you know, that it draws upon or what, what are the sort of roots of the, the legend? Yeah. So the, the film draws in its bare like bare bones broadest plot from Saxo Grammaticus's version of the story of Amletus uh, of Denmark. Um, Saxo Grammaticus was a 12th century historian in Denmark who was very interested in kind of the national project or I suppose pre-national project of creating one history that synthesized a lot of other histories uh, for Denmark specifically. Um, this like synthesis project of creating a national history is actually really popular in the 12th and 13th centuries. So Iceland does it too with sagas and you've got English historians doing the same kind of thing. So it's how do you marry all these disparate facts about the known world into one mega story? So Saxo just, Grammaticus... Hmm? Why, why? What's happening at this moment? Uh, as a historian, I'm curious. That's sort what of is, the nation-building yeah, yeah. period, right? Yeah, for, what is the for push Scandinavia? To so there's trying bits. Uh, well, it's part of that process. I would say in Scandinavia specifically, at this point, you're a few generations, and by a few, I mean like two, three hundred years out from Christianization as a process. So you have the consolidation, the beginnings of the consolidation of the nation state. And at the same time, this period, about 1050 to 1200, the High Middle Ages, is like kind of a, a, a renaissance of, of theological and historical interest. So there's also a huge like Christian invent of like, marrying all of these different narratives of, you know, pre-Christian or pagan or heathen pasts, how do we fit that into salvation history? You know, God's oh, plan for the world. Um, so, so Saxo wrote this absolutely enormous text um, that you read a bit of in grad school, you know, uh, but if you, if you study Saxo, like, you study Saxo. Like, that's what you do. <laughs> um, so he wrote in the 12th century the story of um, Amletus, one of the prince of Denmark. And most and most scholars, you know, the consensus is that he is pulling from oral traditions that no longer remain. Um, the only other instance we have of this, um, besides Shakespeare's Hamlet, which was composed right around 1600, I think, um, is... Um, Amleva Saga, which is a much, much later, early modern. It only exists in paper manuscripts in Iceland. So the saga of Amlovi, um, 
But people have argued that the saga of Amlothi might actually not be connected to Shakespeare's Hamlet at all, but is instead continuous oral tradition that Saxo was also pulling from that was retained in Iceland, which is entirely possible. That's one of the things I talk a lot about in my my sagas course here at at UW is that there's um, a lot of oral tradition and even a lot of myths that we just know nothing about. There's even references in like the stories we have from the 13th century, again, um, about, you know, Thor and Odin and Loki and the different gods. There's, you know, a couple references to a god named Utlur. We know very little about him. Presumably he was really popular. There's whole regions of Scandinavia that have lots of like towns and like places named after him. So he must have had a very large cult following, but like, we don't, we don't know. So like, why not? Why not a Hamlet story? You know? (laughs) (laughs) So maybe uh, if we go to Saxo and he seems to be like the, probably the main inspiration here, what, what does that story tell? What, what are its major themes? What is it trying to express? Um, Because obviously the Northmen and Hamlet, I would imagine are spins on that. So in the context of the sort of nation building project of the 12th century, what is Saxo trying to express? express with this myth that becomes foundational to the North Atlantic culture. You know, one yeah. of the big ones. Yeah. So the the story of Omletus that Saxo tells, Omletus is very Omlet is very clearly the hero of the story. He's he's the perfect prince in that he manages to escape um, an attempted assassination, you know, and he also, he plays the fool, as it were. I think the Latin is like imbecilus or something. That's another thing. Saxo writes in Latin. So this is a, a huge Latin work, a great example of like high, medial, high Middle Ages learning. Um, uh, Omelette successfully go returns and avenges the death of his father and then uh, is later betrayed and dies but is buried and is like venerated after his after his death and he's so cool the whole time he like outsmarts his uncle he has two wives and they're both really hot um, and in fact the second wife was sent by the king of England to kill him but she ended up marrying him instead because he was yeah, just too much so swag. <laughs> yeah. Too, yeah it's too much man <laughs> I mean too know. swagged out is there a Gertrude character or a mother character rather in the original so is it the same classic mother betrays father for uncle they kill dad prince is dealing with that yeah broad broad strokes the same I will say the addition of her being a slave um, or having formerly been uh, an enslaved person in the in the Northman in the film, that's as far as I know, not in Saxo's version. So that's a a change that they made. That that's a change I think I like, actually. Um, but. Yeah, it kind of gives her a reason for doing what she did. I, yeah, I, I yeah, agree. Be, with beyond that. just being a w- woman and sort of a gendered right, stereotype, the, yeah, it obvious, gives her motivation, right, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so let's go to the Northmen then, because you said that one of the interesting things about it when we're thinking of sort of the Viking Anglo canon is that it took a lot of the new research, particularly material discoveries, seriously. Mm-hmm. Um, so could you maybe talk about what, 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 what was that? And, and maybe it might be useful to compare to the show Vikings. Like what does Vikings do badly that this does well and things along those lines? Not badly in an artistic sense, but in terms of historical accuracy, since these are documentaries, so they don't have to follow it. But I'm just curious, like, Eggers prides himself on research. Yeah. 
I watched a couple of interviews that Eggers did uh, about the Northman and, and what exactly he was proud about. And he talked so much about the construction of the Viking Age farm that they build in Iceland. Um, and then also a lot of the clothing that characters wear, that all of their costumes were based on real archaeological uh, excavations, which, which is true. What's not true, obviously, is who's wearing them and what they're doing. But I I was really happy to see the costuming in this film. Um, people think of the Middle Ages as being just like dirty and gray. And this film is very dirty and this film is very gray, but at least the characters have embroidery on their tunics. Like <laughs> that's people care about how they look. And and we see evidence of that in the medieval period in Scandinavia as well. So it was really nice to see that like, oh, they, this person has a dyed green tunic and this person is a blue one and they all have like fun little collars and things. That was really satisfying. Um, but like. Uh, I think there's a Wired interview with Neil Price where he walks through, who's at the University of Uppsala, who walks through all the different weapons, that those are all from Viking Age graves. Um, same with uh, the big one, which is depicting slavery at all. I think that's one thing that Vikings, the History Channel's Vikings show gets wrong, that they're not interested in m rendering visible that labor. Whereas the Northman really is interested in rendering that labor visible. So when they're constructing the farm, Fjolnir's farm in Iceland, and we get these kind of long montages of slave labor putting the farm together um, and the kind of drudgery of those days, um, that, was, that was really, I think, important. And that's something I see as like, oh, I can use this in my teaching, right? This is one of the only modern Viking films that includes an interest in slavery. And like the, the manacles that they wear around their neck when they're being marched over Iceland, which... That's not right, but fine. <laughs> the, the them marching, that is. Yeah, the that's an American image, I think, from American popular culture. Well, no, and the, Americans. the manacles are are real. That's a real oh, thing. Oh, really? I I oh, meant I the the actual the actual cuts that they make in the film when they're walking across Iceland. They just picked like three landscapes in Iceland, and they were like, "This is cool. This is cool. This is oh, to show mistake. communicate." Yeah. So the manacles the, are real. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. So there's um, I think it's at the. Birka excavation in southern Sweden um, at one of the trading ports they've been has been found some of these manacles that are the right size for a human neck. It's difficult to determine exactly how those manacles would have been used because we know that like Viking Age peoples in Scandinavia also traded horses and cattle and sheep and goats and so like a human neck and a goat neck not too different, right? But right. but we know, we know that there was a significant underclass of enslaved peoples, especially on larger farms in Scandinavia. What was the nature of that slavery? Was it was it a form of chattel slavery? Could people work for their freedom? Were they considered like what is the role? Were they considered quote unquote part of the family, or were they considered someone external to the social group? Could could there be intermarriage? Because as as you noted, the, the mother character played by Nicole Kidman was a former slave. So could you talk about about the nature of Viking slavery? Yes, I can. Um, Viking. The the biggest thing to take away about Viking Age slavery is that it's not the same across Scandinavia. Um, Scandinavia is, you know, hundreds of miles wide and hundreds of years long is the Viking Age. Um, and so slavery in eastern Sweden on the Baltic Sea probably looked really different from slavery in like western Iceland. Um, 
But we do have, for example, in the sagas, uh, Lockstyler Saga, a very famous saga of the Icelanders, uh, one of the main characters of that saga, Olavr Pauwe, which translates to Olaf Peacock, his mother was an enslaved person. Her name was Melkorka, and she was an enslaved, she was an enslaved Irish princess who was bought by Olaf's father um, at a slave market, I think in Dublin, though I might be misremembering. Um, and we know Dublin was also a very large slave market. Most of the slaves that are described in the sagas of Icelanders that talk about um, the, the Viking Age in Iceland, most of the slaves that are named have uh, have names that are of, of Celtic origins. And we know from like uh, matrilineal mitochondrial DNA that a significant percentage of the female population in Iceland at time of settlement was Celtic or was from the British Isles. So, so we know, we know that it happened. Some slaves we do have on the books, some slaves do have some rights in the Viking Age, so you cannot kill your slave. Um, and some, we know some enslaved peoples did buy their freedom or were gifted their freedom. So that same saga, Lockstyla saga, one of the Viking Age chieftains, who's actually a woman, in the deep-minded, when she dies, she bequeaths some of her land to some of her slaves whom she frees and then gives them a farm and their own valley. Um, so it is it is possible. Um, in terms of like in-group, out-group, I'm going to lean really heavy on this Celtic thing again because Iceland is more my area, but uh, we know we know therefore, right, that people were speaking, this was a multilingual environment. That character Olaf Pauwe, Olaf Peacock, he speaks both Old Norse and Irish in the saga, and that's important because he can he goes to Ireland and like communicates and meets his his grandfather, his mother's father, and like chats with him and for a bit in Irish. So so we know there's multilingualism. We what we don't see is any evidence of that multilingualism really in the written record except in personal names. And that's most likely because that was considered to be the language of the underclass. It was not a prestige language and not the one that people used. Um, I'm just rambling, but I have more. Can I tell you another example? Yeah, please. Give us as <laughs> okay. many as you want. <laughs> There's another really famous saga called Ale's Saga where, um, and this actually is good because we can talk about the, the game the, the Viking rugby game. <laughs> um, oh, good, great. Let's go. Yeah. Let's do that and go into the rugby game. And yeah. then let's go into a question about gender because I think that's, that is huge. Yeah. So there's a scene in Eil's saga where Eil, the main character, the protagonist of that saga, his father in a rage kills his nursemaid, which is often how the term, the Old Norse term is translated. She has an Irish name. And Ail is so angry that his father, in a berserker rage, has killed his nursemaid that Ail kills one of his his father's favorite slave. Uh, and so you have this kind of tit-for-tat moment. Ail at the time, I think, is like seven years old. So this is foreshadowing for Ail as he grows up and it does more wreaks more Viking havoc, as if you will. Um, but he, he's so, the fact that he's so angry at the death of his nursemaid shows that at, there is at least, at least in the 13th century, right, some um, sympathy for personal relationships uh, on farm spaces with, with 
enslaved peoples who work on your farm. But that doesn't mean it was good. <laughs> right, of course. Uh, yeah. Right. It's yeah. never good to be a slave. Right. Uh, basically, yeah. And so how does that connect? I'd love to talk for a second about the Viking rugby game. And if that is proto-rugby, is this realistic? What 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 is that? Or accurate, well, rather. <laughs> yeah, I brought up I brought up uh, Ale Saga about it because there's also a scene in Ale Saga when, again, he's like seven, he's a child. There are a couple of scenes when he's a kid and does these very precocious things where he's a sore loser at a ball game, kind of like this one. Um, Ale is a chieftain's son, and he and the other boys are playing a game, a ball game, and the other boys are bigger than him. And so Ale loses and becomes so upset that he kills one of the other boys who's playing. And uh, that in the saga is not really framed as like a good thing. Like a chieftain's son should not lose his temper that way. And Ale famously has a very short temper, doesn't have very good control over his own emotions. He's kind of a tragic figure in that he's like, he's just too big for the world. He's, his body's too big. He has too much aggression. He has too many deep thoughts. Like he's, he's a warrior poet is the like genre of saga that his saga is. So as for the game in the Northman, we do have multiple references to ball games like that that would have been played as leisure activities by people in Viking Age Iceland. Um, and I think, uh, so that's really cool. I, Were they that brutal? Like, they've depicted them as, like, extremely brutal. Well, they yeah, in the film, it seemed like they were pitting groups of slaves from two different farms against each other and, like, having them kill each other for sport. Like, it's as you got eliminated, your body was just kind of dragged off the field. I would say, and this sounds very—I would say that's not a good use of one's slave labor— Right, um, right. Speaking if, quite if you practically, imagine them as capital, yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Like destroying feel, your, it's not your good value. value for for the money. Yeah, Fjolnir yeah. Fjolnir spent a lot of money on on those people, which is an awful sentence. Um, however, we do yeah, know. Yeah, I felt weird just saying that. Actually, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not good value for the money. Return on investment. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about the way slavery is depicted in this film, but after yes, we talk about do. the game before we do before we do gender. Um, uh, but uh, so we do have we do have references to ball games in the sagas, though as far as I know, they are not between enslaved peoples. They're between like free men or even landowning farmers and their families. Um, they're the male relatives, um, and it was a kind of a friendly way to spend time with people in your region. That said, we do also have evidence from the sagas of things like gambling. And things like horse fighting, which is basically the Viking Age equivalent of like cockfighting, where you would kind of goad two horses to attack each other. And so it's entirely possible that you could have had um, slave slave fighting rings for sport, that forcing your slaves to inflict pain on each other as a form of entertainment. I'm not aware of that in the corpus but I think that thematically for the Northman, it fits in quite well because the Northman wants you to see the brutalities of slavery and come away thinking that was bad. 
Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And so I think that brings us very naturally to the question of gender. And But before we get into that, I just want to highlight that on the show Vikings, one of the most compelling characters is, of course, Ragnar Lothbrok's wife, uh, Lagertha. And, and I think that introduced the concept of the shield maiden to American popular culture, even though it's existed before. So could you maybe, uh, uh, this is probably the same answer, you know, Scandinavia is huge and there are lots of different cultures. But is what is, I mean, what is the role of women is too large of a question, but uh, is is there... A, a character like the shield maiden or, or, or do women fight in Viking battles? Um, what is broadly speaking, again, this is way too broad a question, but they're all in society. I'm just asking it broadly so you could just zoom in on whatever you want listeners to know. I would say one big takeaway, uh, gender is very much tied to class both today and in the Viking Age. There's a real, there's a famous, there's a scene. It's not a famous scene. It's just a scene from one of the first episodes of uh, The Last Kingdom, which I yes, think you mentioned at the top of the, the show, yeah, yeah. where the, yeah. the love interest for season one, um, Unferth's, or uh, what's his name? Oh, the main character, it doesn't matter. His, his father has the same name. He stumbles across his love interest and she's standing like waist deep in a lake washing clothes. <laughs> and he's like, wow so domestic. I'm so aroused right now. And it's very romantic. And he like he gets in the water and they like kiss and stuff. And I'm like, okay, what's happening? Noble women didn't wash their own clothes, right? Slave, enslaved women or itinerant washer women who were of this kind of labored um, underclass, uh, even if they had their freedom, they weren't necessarily tied to one household. They're the ones doing the manual labor of laundry, right? That's not noble women. So there's not only is Scandinavia lots of cultures, but there's also lots of women <laughs> who do different things. Noble women do have, in the texts that survive, quite an important role in the day-to-day -day management of the household, like the entire farm, like they hire and fire workers. There's, um, in Njal's saga, a, a married couple, Gunnar and Haldgerder, Gunnar and Halgerd, they fight for like a hundred pages over how to manage food stores in their household. Like they fight over money all the time and how to manage all their employees on the farm. They hire a lot of tenant workers and that's a, a big source of conflict in their marriage. Um, so they women held uh, important roles practically and then they also held important roles ritually. Um, so, and this actually is a pan Scandinavian, even into like the British Isles, like Germanic, broadly Germanic thing, um, that women had a ritual role in feasting. Women traditionally are the ones who brew ale. So that's a kind of magic in itself. You're transforming one liquid into another. I mean, that's one of Christ's miracles. It's a very big deal to make beer, to make alcohol. Uh, and so women, noble women, will be the ones to welcome guests and to serve them ale. And not in like a, oh, I'm going to be your server for this evening kind of labor class working thing, but a rather welcome to my home. I am divvying out our resources to welcome you, my guest kind of mode. There's if you've read Beowulf, it's like that. Um, this particular film, The Northman, I really enjoyed seeing women in the roles of religious specialist as well. Um, and then also, so we have the, the Valkyrie character, that Omelette's girlfriend, Olga. I think Olga, yeah. Yeah, that she, she has um, supernatural ability. Um, and then there's also Björk 
in in the film who is gives gives this kind of prophecy, uh, which is very much like a fantasy saga, like popular saga that medieval people would have told, you know, of a heroic saga, um, generic expectation that you have some kind of prophecy about the fate of your hero. Um, that was really cool to see her in there. But that, I think, is is more, is working off of more recent archaeological evidence. This is another example of, of that, that um, there, not too long ago, some excavations were done in, again, in southern Sweden, uh, where we found... Um, uh, like the top of like a crook, like a, a cane or like a bishop's crook um, that has like a little animal figurehead on it in the grave of a woman, which indicates from the Viking age, which indicates that she probably had some sort of shamanic role um, or religious specialist role. There's also in Fadlan's account of the Rus, which is a 10th century description of... Oh, we'll get into the Rus yeah. in a second. Yeah, Derek has <laughs> a few questions about that. Yeah. There's women women in there who also are serving as this kind of religious specialist role. I personally was really excited to see the male shaman in this film. Who, Can we talk about that for a bit? The Viking yeah. ritual as displayed in the film? Well, actually, just shield maidens, oh. real or not real? <laughs> Is Wonder Woman real? <laughs> That's that that would be my answer. That like we have stories of Wonder Woman. Like Wonder Woman was super popular in the 50s and 60s before women could enlist in the military as foot soldiers. But we have so this there doesn't fantasy. seem to be evidence, basically. Uh, well, what evidence would we look for? We would look for bodies of women who either are buried with other soldiers or fighters or who have wounds, evidence of wounds on their bones, right? We do have a grave in Sweden, BJ 581 out of Birka, of a a woman who is buried with a bunch of weapons with other men around her who also are buried with weapons. So very clearly she had some kind of martial role. Um, But we do also have several mass graves from the Viking Age um, that very clearly it's mostly young men who died in these battles, and we don't find any female skeletons. However, that one female grave from Birka, 581, BJ 581, that was a reanalysis of that grave relatively recently. Because it had originally been sexed male right, because so could, of wow. all of the fighting stuff with it. So so I think that that discovery kind of calls for a reexamination of the material evidence that we have. Um, I think Vikings, the television show, you have Lagertha and you have a lot of women who fight. Um, but then in The Northmen, you only have one. Just that one. And I I feel like that's almost swinging the pendulum like too far the other way. Interesting. So Um, so it's open and and open to material things. So I know uh, Derek has a question. Sorry, Derek, but I just want to, we're on the ritual part. So maybe we could just talk a little bit about what you thought about the display of Viking ritual, the use of bodily fluids, the use of flatulence, I think has gotten a lot of play. And is that real? What do we know? All that good stuff. So a lot of the, poetry that we have uh, is, and even some of the sagas are very interested in blood. Like, <laughs> like so there's a, a very famous um, myth that is how Odin got the mead of wisdom that allows him to like be so wise and s- speak all of the poetry. Um, and it involves um, dwarves killing a giant named Kvasir and then fermenting his blood into mead. Um, and so this transmutation of 
of liquid from one liquid into another than that newer one having magical properties is a pretty strong, like, motif across Scandinavian mythology. Um, and I already talked about how women brewing ale, that's that's a kind of magic, you know, and a lot of magic in the sagas is um, you imbibe it. So there, there's like, oh, someone knows that this drink has been poisoned, right? Um, there's a scene in Ale's saga where ale is able to um, prevent a poisoning by cutting runes on his hand and then putting, clasping his bloody hand onto the cup and it bursts as a sign that there's poison there. Which actually is, I think, an allusion to the life of St. Benedict. St. Benedict has a very similar scene where God I saves him. I was thinking him, the same thing. <laughs> of course, yeah, duh. Um, <laughs> but but uh, in terms, yes, the, the, uh, the use of liquids, I would say, is, is not wrong. Um, or at least is, is based on larger patterns in the myth tradition from Scandinavia. The, the, what about the psychedelics? And I'm oh, sorry, flatulence and then psychedelics. Oh, no, we can do we can do psychedelics. So we know that at least some people did them. <laughs> and that's so vague. We've found some um, evidence in graves, uh, at least one burial that I know of, uh, that we found henbane seeds in the grave. Henbane is it's something called like uh deadly stinging nightshade or something like that. And it's it's a hallucinogen. Um, so most likely it would have been used for, you know, medicinal purposes or for, you know, ritual religious purposes. Um, we don't have any physical evidence of using, like, psychedelic mushrooms, right, from Viking Age Scandinavia. But it's all organic materials. Like, those degrade. They decompose. We're not going to be able to find them. And what we do have is, you know, people drinking in the, in the mythology and in some of the later sagas, people drinking potions that do create some kind of altered state. I get this question from students like every quarter, did the Vikings do mushrooms? <laughs> and and I and I always tell them I say like I wouldn't rule it out, but there's also a lot of ways that humans can enter altered states of consciousness. Right. And like the and, berserkers, yeah. Yeah, and much more common cross-culturally and in the Arctic is to use some of those other techniques. So things like um, hyperventilating or like changing your breathing patterns, spinning is another one, drumming is another one, chanting or doing like low chants. And you see that in the film, right? The the production team had really had a ball, I think, with kind of recreating or reimagining what kinds of, of trance aids would have been available to people in the Viking age. I also felt at the same time kind of uncomfortable with those scenes because a lot of what we know about how to induce trance states in the cultures of the Arctic specifically come to us from ethnographic work uh, with Sami people, the indigenous people of northern Scandinavia, and not dissimilar from uh, here in North America, it was illegal for a large part of the last several centuries for indigenous peoples to practice their own religious traditions. So we go to see the Northman and we're like, oh, wow, cool. They're doing like shamanic trance. And it's like, well, Native Americans couldn't practice their religion legally until the 70s, you know. So it was right. it was there's, an interesting. There's a colonialism inherent yeah. in the project. Yeah. And and again, inherent in the project, I think, is a good way to phrase it. Because, like, if you want to depict what it right. most likely would have been like, then you're going to do this. But your audience isn't necessarily going to know the history of that. 
I felt right. I felt the same way really quickly. I felt the same way about some of the choices they made with depicting slavery, like the scene when Fjolnir buys omelet when they make it to Iceland and he does it by like inspecting their teeth. That's not in the old Norse corpus anywhere. That's coming out of, you know, global slave trade traditions, American ideas about, you know, and true experiences that happened to enslaved peoples. You know, that that so stuff like that where I'm like, oh okay, we're borrowing on other from other traditions to kind of flesh out this world. The flatulence. And then that's <laughs> that's that's to Derek after that. So um there's uh, that same famous story about Odin getting the mead. Uh, the the story goes that he drinks a lot of it and then transforms into the shape of a bird and flies back to Asgard. And the giants who have the mead chase after him. And so Odin, in order to like lighten his load, he vomits out the good mead, he regurgitates it, and the the, the Aesir catch it in some big buckets uh, back in Asgard. And then he also shits out, can I say that on your podcast? Oh, yes, yes. We're a very <laughs> podcast. Yeah. He, he also <laughs> shits out some of the mead um, from his back end. And Snorri Sturluson, our 13th century author of the text that this myth comes to us in, says, and that's where bad poetry comes from. It's <laughs> a good so, origin story. <laughs> sure. So yeah, so yeah, there's fart jokes. There's also not. There's also a pretty long history of um, having kind of a court poet who will um, speak truth to power. Like Willem Dafoe, yeah. Yeah, both the power of the king, but also the power of the king's maybe enemies who are coming to visit. You know, and so you can you can say a lot with humor. Like, the more dick jokes you make, the less people take you seriously, but the closer to actually calling a spade a spade you can, you can get. So uh, some, of, some of the Skaldic poems we have are quite, uh, quite humorous in, like, body humor kind of ways. Quite ribald, if you will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, but the, but the shaman character, the male shaman character from the film, I got so far away. I loved how they did his costuming. That he visually communicates a kind of of queerness, like sexual queerness, by wearing the brooches that are associated with upper class women. Again, that's the kind of thing where it's like, I don't know if your average moviegoer would get that. But I was like, okay, so he's kind of in this sexually ambiguous space. Yeah, a liminal space, yeah. Yeah, and, and holding William Defoe's head between his legs as he's receiving the vision as if he's like giving birth. You know, and having these kinds of like labor contractions as he's shaking and doing this. It was so it was so cool. That was my favorite. That's my favorite scene. <laughs> um so I had a question, and this is actually kind of led into it. Before I say this, I want to let everybody know like one of Danny's passions is the the lives of the Christian saints. So when you start talking about Saint Benedict, <laughs> it's uh it's right up his alley. It's all I can um, talk about. <laughs> yeah. Um <laughs> Anyway, um, when you, you we catch up to Omelette after the the betrayal of his father, and and you know time passes, and uh, we catch up to him in this scene where they are doing you know what you you talked about a little earlier, uh, this low chanting kind of you know trying to achieve an altered state of consciousness so they can go into battle as berserkers, you know the kind of people who wrestle a horse to the ground or like kill somebody by kicking him in the face. And um, I'm curious about the portrayal of the berserker in the movie and how that aligns with sort of the the mythic portrayal of the the viking berserker warrior and and then you know what the connection is between that 
and the actual you know ways that Vikings fought that we or that we uh, you know we can sort of surmise that they fought. Yeah. Um, ooh, the berserker question. <laughs> um, I would. I I would. There's. Ooh. Okay. So there are a few different written sources that describe berserkers, not as individuals, but like kind of as groups. So Snorri Sturluson, 13th century historian who Friend wrote... Friend of the pot. Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, he wrote uh, down a lot of the myths that we have that we call like Norse mythology. That was that was him. He also, uh, another text is attributed to him, Inglinga Saga, which is a saga that is the history of the kings of Norway. Uh, Heimskringla, rather, which means just like all around the world. So he wrote Heimskringla, a history of the kings of Norway. And the first text within the history of the kings of Norway is called Inglinga Saga. And he starts with the first king of Norway, of course, Odin. Duh. <laughs> of course. So, I mean, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he, he actually starts with Thor, um, who he says comes from Turkey. and Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, it's because the Greeks and Romans hold a lot of prestige in the 12th and 13th century in Europe, broadly. So you actually get a lot of interest in the British Isles as well. These historians that I was talking about earlier, they all want to be able to trace themselves back to the Mediterranean somehow. And so Snorri makes this argument that like, well, because Thor's name is Thor, he must be from Troy or maybe from Turkey, but like he was from the Mediterranean and then went north um, and from him comes the line of kings of Norway. Um, and he talks about Odin and some of the magics that Odin was able to do and thereby trick people into thinking that he was a god, which, again, very common strategy for these salvation history historians, euhemerism, saying that they weren't actually gods, the pagan gods. They, must, they were just men who tricked people. They were charlatans, right? And he describes Odin's followers as being as acting like animals as you know being as strong as wolves but also howling like wolves and entering this kind of altered state of consciousness um snorri's writing in the 13th century right so that's that's one thing on the other end we have a first century text so over a thousand years before and like 700 years before the viking age tacitus writes an ethnography of basically everybody north of rome and he calls it Germania, you know, the people, the, and in it, he describes a bunch of different tribes of, like, basically everything from Rome up to Finland um, based on second and third hand accounts. And he describes the German, I'm putting quotation marks, this is an audio medium, the Germanic troops, uh, when they fight, uh, he describes them as being very loud, that they yell a lot, and that they bite at their shields. This is actually confirmed in the Lewis chess pieces, which are, you know, a Viking Age material artifact where the knight figures have uh, are depicted holding their rounded shields in front of them and gnawing at the top of them. That they, the berserkers, have this kind of like madness associated, this bloodlust associated with them. That they are like they are like animals. Um, whether or not this is a thing that people actually did is, to a certain extent, impossible to prove. Um, but certainly in, the, in the, co the cultural consciousness, you have this image of the berserker. 
Um, Imagine the dental work they would have needed after <laughs> oh, yeah. gnawing well, on their shit. And it's in the British Museum. If anyone wants to visit it, it's really it's they're really cool chess pieces. <laughs> yeah, the the dental work. It's funny you mentioned that Olga. When uh, Omelet has a vision of her as a Valkyrie, she's got kind of it looks like braces across her teeth. She's got these indentions on her front teeth. That's also an archaeological thing. There's at least one grave with multiple bodies in it that we found that showed that uh, the. the I think it's I think it's on the east coast of England. Don't quote me on that, but it's you know Viking Age excavation um, where people have filed into the dentin the enamel on their front teeth and then dyed it red. So so certainly there was part of the Viking Age strategy of of Norse raiders was to intimidate the opponent. You know, being very loud, being very terrifying looking. Um, so. To that extent, I'd say yes. When I when I teach about berserkers in my sagas course, I often I will point out to my students that uh, in the sagas, anyway, they're not usually the good guys. By the later part of the medieval period in in Icelandic literature, berserkers are almost just like an obstacle that the hero has to overcome. So some berserker will like come and threaten a town or threaten to marry the farmer's daughter and the farmer's too poor and too weak and too old to defend himself. And so here comes our hero marching in to defeat the berserker. You know, they kind of become like caricatures of themselves. Um, but even in in the big sagas like Eil's saga, Eil is descended from people who maybe are werewolves. His grandfather maybe was a werewolf, at least a shapeshifter. Um, he enters a kind of berserker rage several times, and uh, he's it's not good. The sagas are really interested in how concentrated power should be or if power should be concentrated at all. Like, who gets to decide how we act as a community? Is it the one strong guy who can fight everybody else? And a lot of the sagas say, no, that's actually a really bad way to organize a society. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> the, I had another... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, oh, go ahead. no, I was, I was just going to answer your question about, is this actually how Viking Age oh, people yeah, yeah, fought? Sure. Viking Age people... It, it depends on where you are. But like, <laughs> one, of, <laughs> one of my favorite facts to say is that the majority of raids in the Viking Age perpetrated by Vikings were on what we would... were in what we would call now Scandinavia. Right. So like you're you're not going down to like Spain and raiding, although they did also right. do that. Most of the time you're going up into areas of Norway and Sweden and Finland um, or Denmark and you're you're fighting with the chieftain next door or you're you're f collecting taxes on behalf of the chieftain who's amassing power down in southern Norway, you know. So you're there as a representative of the new king of Norway. Give me all your money or I'll burn your house down kind of, <laughs> kind of situation. So, And they do they do go in very quickly and come out very quickly. They hit her on the okay. coast. So it's, you know, we it's don't, very hit and run, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, take what you can carry, basically. <laughs> uh, so I, I on that on the, the the king of Norway, which is a good segue actually to my my other question. Uh, I wanted to ask about somebody who's sort of uh, mentioned in the movie uh, is actually a fairly major figure, I think, in in uh, at least Scandinavian myth. I don't know uh, the his, the history 
or the historicity behind him. Uh, but when we catch up to Omelette and he finds out that Fjolnir is, uh, you know, still out there, we learn that he's lost his kingdom and been kind of driven into this uh, exile in Iceland. Uh, and he's lost his kingdom to uh, Harold Fairhair, who's, you know, kind of legendarily the the first king of Norway, I think. I mean, in a, in a historical sense, not, not to, you know, insult Odin or anything. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm curious. Uh, I was curious, you know, what can we say about him? I mean, you know, he's obviously not a focus of the, the movie, but it was interesting that there's this like passing reference to him. And, uh, you know, I knew enough to know that like, the, you know, this is like a, uh, you know, fairly important figure. Uh, what can we say about him from a, from a historical versus kind of a, a mythological perspective? Yeah, so King Harold Fairhair uniting all of Norway is the big story, right? And it's questionable. What is Norway really? <laughs> um, Norway, Norway's only been Norway for you know less than two hundred years. Actually, over two hundred years. Eighteen fourteen was over. Oh God, we're all getting old, aren't we? <laughs> um, it was over two hundred years ago. Um, yes, King Harold Fairhair is traditionally associated with with uniting much of of southern Norway of what today we call Norway. Um, King Olaf Tryggvason, a couple of generations later, probably actually did a lot a lot more for like conversion to Christianity and and kind of getting these different regions more fully under his thumb. I will say, in terms of the settlement of Iceland, the sagas of Icelanders are incredibly consistent in their depiction of the motivations for settlement, that almost all of them start out in the days of King Harold Fairhair was a poor, innocent farmer who owned his own farm in Norway, and King Harold Fairhair came and said, pay me taxes or leave or I'll burn your farm down. And so he packed up and took all of his wealth and all of his family and moved to Iceland, where he settled in such and such valley. And it's been called that ever since. You know, and a lot of those, that's every single saga that starts like that. There's also an entire book uh, about the settlement called Landnámabók, the Book of Settlements, that describes all that names all of the different households, all, all the different farms all around Iceland, many of which date back to, you know, the late ninth century. Um, uh, when I teach that text, I say this is this is a way to establish land rights, right? This is the the reintroduction of private property, right? Or like the we're we're imposing conceptions, legal in conceptions of private property that we own this land because we've lived here a long time um, in Iceland. Whether or not King Harold Fairhair actually did that. Again, how would we know? We would know from what people wrote about him. And so the fact that the sagas are so consistent points to that potentially being a real a real thing, that there were changes in taxation policies potentially with him rising in power as a deep consolidating power in the South that pushed people out. Um, it's also, though, a narrative that is very, like, pro-Iceland, um, both in a contemporary sense of like Iceland being this like very small island nation um, whose own sense of national identity in the 19th century was very tied up in its difference from Denmark and Norway, um, its own cultural distinction. Um, but then even in the medieval period, right, this idea that like, oh, we, the Icelandic chieftains, the nobles, are somehow um, victims of uh, Norwegian hegemony and are, you know, should should be... Uh, united in our in our uh, 
strategy of how to deal with the power relationships with the Norwegian crown. You know, because Iceland goes under the power of the Norwegian crown in the 13th century, which is when a lot of these stories are being written. So you see uh, Norway not really depicted very positively in a lot of these stories. And that may very well be a reflection of contemporary events, just as it is uh, a telling of, you know, potentially real historical events. That's really interesting. Yeah, it was it was a fun it was a fun little Easter egg when when he was like, oh, Fjolnir's been pushed out to like the backwaters of Iceland. I was like, ha! <laughs> and you compare the size of farms in Norway from like the sixth and seventh centuries to the size of farms in Iceland from like the eighth and ninth century or the ninth and tenth centuries. The farms in Iceland are way smaller, like way smaller, and the material culture is forgive forgive me, Icelanders is far less rich. There's just there's not as much stuff. And there's n- and of the stuff that we have, there's not nearly as much like gold. We have huge gold deposits in Denmark and in and in Norway, large graves. The graves in Iceland are much smaller uh, by comparison, hmm. much poorer. So there there may very well be something to that. Um, we know that Iceland most likely, when it was first started being settled, was kind of thought of most likely probably as like a not a trading post, but like an outpost where you would go out to to collect seasonal goods like walrus and, and things like that. So um, it, it probably did have. And there's also scenes in the sagas where Icelanders will come to the king's court and people will like make passive aggressive comments about their clothing because they don't dress fancy <laughs> enough. So... There's so, a, it's a, there's so it's a frontier. I mean, it's a, it's a frontier community, basically. Yeah, like yeah. Country bumpkins. <laughs> So we've been going for a little over an hour. So why don't we actually um, end on this question? And we could probably do more on this. And Lauren, we'd love to have you back. But one of the interesting things about this show is that it depicts, um, you know, Ukraine, not Ukrainians, you know, proto, I I don't, I don't, how, what would be the way to describe them? Um, Because uh, the geopolitical situation right now with Russia and Ukraine is obvious. We've talked about it a bit on the show. And it was ironic that they go to Kiev in, in the movie. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about what do you think they were trying to depict there? And, and what do you think of that depiction? And then we could end on that. And we'd love to have you back in the future. Yeah. So that there, you could call them the Rus. They're often called also the Kievan, the Kievan Rus, um, which is a, an M, a, later Middle, a later medieval empire. Um, and there's this longstanding question about whether or not they were Vikings, right? Because it's a cultural continuum. So in some ways they very much are, but in some ways, they very much aren't. And there's a lot of national interest in Russia, Ukraine, and in Sweden and Denmark and Norway of claiming the Rus as being Vikings or being, you know, part of the Russian Empire or actually part of the, you know, longstanding tradition of Ukraine as an independent state, right? There's a, how we talk about them, you, you bring up a really good point, is very much based in, in contemporary politics. And that was true, you know, in the 1960s as well as today. So the, I usually will call them the Rus in class. I saw an interview with Skarsgård where he actually talked about why they chose it. And maybe he was just being kind of flippant in his answer. He said that in the original script, they were going to go to the British Isles, but that that has been done so many times before that they wanted to go somewhere different. 
And so they decided to go east. A lot of the depictions of Vikings we have are very much focused on the West because the sagas of Icelanders are such a rich mine of material. Um, We have a lot less written literature coming out of Sweden from the same period, like just immediately after the Viking Age. So, But we do have a lot more archaeological stuff. So I think that was probably just part of Eggers's historical interest in depicting things that are very well known in scholarship but aren't depicted elsewhere. And he made an interesting choice, too, with the funeral ritual that Fjolnir has for his son in Iceland, that that ritual is described in Ibn Fadlan's account of the Rus. That's a Rusin ritual. So we have a whole, I have a whole day in, in my mythology class where we talk about, is this actually a Viking ritual or not? What is a Viking? Is it a time period, a territory, or a lifestyle? You know, like, what is it? <laughs> or a know? vibe. Maybe it's just yeah, a or vibe. a vibe. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like all to think, Vikings? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so beautiful. And, and that's really just a beautiful note to end on. Lauren Poyer, thank you so much. Um, we would love to have you back on again to talk all things Vikings. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate that you were on American Prestige. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Our thanks once again to Daniel Bessner and Derek Davison for allowing us to share this interview with Lauren Poyer. You can listen to other episodes of American Prestige at AmericanPrestigePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's intro was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors, and our intro music was used with permission by Christian Hranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about our podcast and the classes we teach. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. Lauren Poyer regularly teaches Old Norse language, Scandinavian mythology, sagas of the Vikings, and Vikings in pop culture. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu. that that ritual is described in Ibn Fadlan's account of the Rus. That's a Rusin ritual. So we have a whole, I have a whole day in, in my mythology class where we talk about, is this actually a Viking ritual or not? What is a Viking? Is it a time period, a territory, or a lifestyle? You know, like, what is it? <laughs> or a know? vibe. Maybe it's just yeah, a or vibe. a vibe. <laughs> Aren't yeah, we like all Vikings? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's so beautiful. And, and that's really just a beautiful note to end on. Lauren Poyer, Thank you so much. Um, We would love to have you back on again to talk all things Vikings. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate that you were on American Prestige. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Our thanks once again to Daniel Bessner and Derek Davison for allowing us to share this interview with Lauren Poyer. You can listen to other episodes of American Prestige at AmericanPrestigePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's intro was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors, 
and our intro music was used with permission by Christian Ranar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about our podcast and the classes we teach. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. Lauren Poyer regularly teaches Old Norse language, Scandinavian mythology, sagas of the Vikings, and Vikings in pop culture. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.